I'm torn because I'm, I can't get angry at the cops when I'm like, well, they're probably standing there thinking, well, hell, how do I, how do I compete with what that kid has, the firepower? And that goes to why does an 18-year-old need a, an, a, an assault-style AR-15 or whatever and that much ammunition? They're, that should never, if he just had a pistol, I think the cops would be able to get in there quickly and take down the threat uh, much more effectively. Every firearm round is going to do extreme damage. I mean, you can get shot by a 22, which is smallest caliber round practically out there that's commercially sold frequently, and you can die from it or you can survive from it. And the same thing can be said from that. They do do damage the bigger the caliper goes. But when you go up in the caliber, uh, you're going to find that a handgun, I mean, a 357 Magnum wheel gun will do horrific damage. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This episode is about guns. It's the first of a two-part series I'm going to do over two weeks. And I'm going to say more about that in a minute, but first, an item of business. So I am getting an overwhelming response to my new project, The Unspeakeasy. You may have already heard me talking about it, but in case not, this is a heterodox community for women. If you listen to a lot of podcasts like this one, you may have noticed that despite a handful of women uh, in the host's seats and uh, in the audience, there are perhaps not quite as many women's voices in the overall mix as we may like. So that is why I am creating a community for free-thinking women, and it will exist both online and in real life. To learn more about it, go to theunspeakeasy.com. You can sign up on the mailing list. You can offer any suggestions for what you'd like to get out of such a thing. And I will keep you posted. It's very much in progress, but I will be working on it over the summer and hoping to get it launched very early in the fall. Again, that's theunspeakeasy.com. Okay, this is the first of a two-part episode about guns in America. So well before the shooting in Uvalde, Texas last month, I was thinking about how I could cover this issue with sufficient nuance. It's not a subject I know much about at all, although I have to say that with age and experience, I have become less dogmatic. I think that's what happens when, in addition to living in largely gentrified urban areas of the sort that I've been living in, you just kind of spend more time in rural communities getting to know people whose lives are different from your own. Anyway, after a lot of digging around, I came across a 2018 project that was a collaboration with Time Magazine and a conglomerate of media companies called Guns and American Conversation. And that brought together 21 people who had wide-ranging views on gun control for a two-day conversation and later a, a closed Facebook group just about uh, the issues of guns and what, where people were talking past each other and where there were impasses. And it was quite fascinating. I watched a video about the project and I was struck by two people in particular. One was Melanie Jeffcoat. She has a background in film and theater and she's a fierce advocate for gun control. She happens to live in Alabama. The other was John Godfrey, 
He's a staunch defender of the Second Amendment who owns many guns and sees them as central to his life and essential to the safety of his family and himself. He lives outside of Syracuse, New York. In the video, I found John and Melanie not only very articulate on their own, but incredibly patient and generous with one another when they were together. Uh, And in fact, they became friends and have stayed friends, mostly because they're very good at having these difficult conversations. So I wanted to bring one of these conversations to the podcast. And in fact, the one we had was so long and so engaging that I decided to present it in two parts. So in this part, John and Melanie talk about their backgrounds and how their early experiences around guns shaped their attitudes. They also share their reactions to the Uvalde shooting. In the second part, which I'll air next week, we talk, among other things, about what safety means to us personally, just how safe we feel in the world and in our worlds, why John carries a gun with him in many places he goes, and why Melanie just recoils when she sees people openly carrying guns in her state. It happens that Melanie lives in a red state and John lives in a blue state. And one thing I really noticed in this conversation is how much the laws vary from state to state, which we tend to forget because high-profile events like mass shootings are certainly not limited to states with looser gun laws. Anyway, I think this is a really good conversation, and I'm glad to bring it to you. So here it is. Melanie Jeffcoat and John Godfrey, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about why you both became involved in Gun Conversation, the collaboration between Time Magazine and Advance Local. But before we get into that, Melanie, I was hoping you could tell us what happened to you in high school. There was an event that happened that shaped how you feel about guns today. I was a a freshman or sophomore. I was an underclassman and um, uh, a student in a classroom adjacent to mine, brought a pistol to school and shot his history teacher, Mr. Pickett, and then shot two other students and then took off running into the school. And the alarms were sounding in the school and total chaos broke out because there was no, you know, there was no code for that, that uh, people were just saying there's a shooter and, someone was shot and there's blood and I just panicked and started running any direction I could move my body because it was like a sea of kids. It was a huge high school. I think like 2,500 kids. So I got shoved like a sea of people into this auditorium um, and the door was locked. And then there was no communication after that. But in that classroom was the other history teacher who was best friends with Mr. Piggott. And he had blood on his clothes. I found out later that he had gone into his best, his best friend died in his arms, basically. And then he came back to this classroom where I am. And he put on the movie On the Waterfront, probably because he just found something to put on to just so that he could, I realize now as a, an adult, like he probably was like, just, I need to go the fellow students who were shot survived, thankfully. And, um, and then we just kind of went on. And I didn't think much about that until Columbine. And then, of course, Newtown. And then I started to realize 
how lucky I was, first of all, that he just had a pistol with limited bullets. I realized that what I experienced was something kids today are experiencing. I had just suppressed it for so long that I didn't, I didn't think of myself as being a survivor of gun violence because I wasn't shot, you know, but the more I learned about it, the more I realized the PTSD I have from that experience resurfaces every time there's one of these events. I realized how much it impacted me and how much survivors are impacted regardless of how close they are to the event. John, before we talk about how you got involved in gun conversation, I'm just I'm curious, can you talk about what your first experience was with guns growing up as a as a boy or as a teenager? What was your life like around this subject? Well, I, I come from a large family and they uh, they were hunters, not what I'd call avid hunters, but uh, uh, my dad deer hunted every year and, and my brother had firearms and hunted. And uh, because I was close to the end, my oldest brother was a lot of times more like a father figure. And uh, he taught me how to shoot. And uh, that that's kind of my experience, more or less. I mean, I grew up in the age where in high school, I hunted uh, waterfowl and deer. And uh, I'd gone to school with a shotgun and it locked in the trunk of my car. And my friend had his and the locked in his pickup and we would go duck hunting after school. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So uh, it was a different era than today. So how did you get involved in gun conversation? What, what made them pick you and what made you want to do it? I was uh, a soldier for 20 years in the United States Army. I retired. I was a senior non-commissioned officer. And I, I joined when I was 17. So I retired when I was 37. And then I became a police officer because it was a natural flow for me. And it was a good fit. And I moved from county to state law enforcement to federal law enforcement. And I had just retired at the age of 56, just about 57. And uh, I saw it advertised in the local uh, paper that they were looking for people to speak about guns. And having experience in both aspects of my past careers, I felt like it, it was something that meant a lot to me. So I decided to apply and, you know, I did the process for about two hours on a Saturday night, finally went to bed. And my wife said, what have you been doing? And I said, oh, I applied for this thing to talk about guns in America. I said, they're going to pick 20 to go to D.C. and talk about it, but they're going to have a bigger online group after. I said, they won't pick me, but maybe uh, I can be part of the online group after. And sure enough, they called me and said, uh, we'd like you to come to D.C. And at that point, what was the thing that you most wanted to say? What was frustrating you? Well, having, especially in the end of my law enforcement career, I was a, a senior administrator for a, a federal department in Syracuse and I had 30 officers and seven support staff. And having experience in dealing with the mental health aspects, especially of uh, violence and veterans in crisis and many situations of that nature. And I, I became very I became friends with a lot of the psychiatrists and psychologists that I worked with. I, I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs Police. And so I, I felt like I had something to offer about the realities of how to stop maybe gun violence. And so that interested. So, Melanie, as you hear John talk right now, what's going through your mind? 
I know you've had a lot of conversations, but like when, when John talks about the mental health aspect of this, do you have a reaction? Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I think John is an exceptional example of how people can come together. I think that he's, you know, I, I live in Alabama and I, I have, I know people who are former cops and military and, and, and they don't seem to have the same sort of, and this is a generalization, but in my experience, the open-mindedness that John has. So I know where he's coming from and that changes sort of how I hear things, if that makes sense. But generally speaking, when, you know, if you take what happened in Texas, uh, the immediate jump to, well, we need to address the mental health issue typically strikes a chord with me in a negative way. I think it's a minor key because, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. I see uh, it's, an, it's an easy scapegoat, first of all, to say, well, these people are crazy that are doing this. And as somebody who had a brother who was schizophrenic, and when he passed away, uh, my parents were in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, because back then, mental health was not considered health care, was not covered. Um, I know what a gentle soul he was. I worked a lot with NAMI at the time. And I know that the vast majority of people who suffer mental illness are not violent. In fact, they're more likely to be the victim of a crime than the perpetrator. So I think it's really easy to just sort of say, well, that's the problem. First of all, it, it increases the stigma that people with mental illness are violent, which is not true. But the larger issue is that the same people saying, well, we need to address, not John, I'm talking politicians who say, we need to address the mental uh, health access are oftentimes the same people who are cutting that support, not expanding Medicaid cutting funding in the areas that that we need it most in terms of early intervention. And, you know, like people say, let's arm the teachers. It's like, yeah, let's arm them with a counselor because some of these massive high schools, if they have one counselor, they're lucky. So I just don't see, I see it's easy to say, but it's very hard to implement because systemically that's that's an area that is lacking. And also, the last few shooters, anyway, uh, Vivaldi in particular, they had no history of mental illness or 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 history of of uh, or any record. Well, there were a lot of red flags with the Uvalde case. Am I remembering this right? Yeah, I mean, there he was doing really, really disturbing things, and there people were concerned. But but actually, so before I keep interrupting you. John, do you have a response to anything Melanie just said? Only in a general sense. I, I think it's a very complex issue. And that's one of the things that gun conversation centered us on was listening to both sides, allowing people to relate their feelings to their personal experiences, which we just did a little bit. And, and it's much deeper. I mean, you can go, we talked in gun conversation for a whole day before we even talked about guns. And that was just getting to know people. And it, it showed how social media, for example, it's just a face value tool. And that's all it is. And you don't really know the people you're having a conversation, having a debate, a discussion, even an argument. Most of the time on social media, it seems like they're arguments. But um, uh, you know, that, that was a real eye opener for me. So something like the Uvalde shooting, John, when you hear, when you heard that news, what, 
What did you think? Well, I, I thought, you know, here's another school shooting. And of course, the law enforcement officer and me, because early in my career, I did community policing and school resource. Uh, it, in, the, in my sheriff's department, it was an additional duty. I did two days a week in the schools. I was not a full-time SRO, even though they sent me to California school for it. And I did presentations on health and safety and law enforcement topics. But I, I actually have sat in, helped teach classes, and do other things. So what I thought was, what's gone wrong? Uh, first thing, the back door was open, and I'm like, you know, that that's something that needs to be addressed, explained. Uh, second of all, uh, it's been doctrine since Columbine for law enforcement that it doesn't matter who's there. You don't wait for SWAT. You form a stack, and you go in and you stop the threat immediately, as quick as you can. And And so I looked at that, but I also said... We need to get facts, and we still don't have all the facts, and we need them. There are certain things because it's an investigation they won't talk about. But, you know, my experience has been in law enforcement working for several different entities um, that cops should generally work for cops. That was a school district police department, and I'm probably talking ahead because, again, I don't know. But that chief, I believe, had limited experience uh, just based on his judgment to not have them go in if everything I'm hearing is true. So that was my thought on the subject. You know, I, we need to find out where the failures were. So Melanie, when you hear something like what John just said, are, are you, because it's, it's interesting because I listened to that answer and I think that's really interesting. And I am the first person I always am saying, let's get the facts. Well, let's slow down here. So I'm totally with you on that. But I can also imagine, Melanie, from your point of view, you might be thinking, well, this is all incidental. The, the point is that there are too many guns and this kid happened to get a hold of one. I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but maybe you could kind of uh, take, you know, go from there. Well, I, I think, you know, there's been, what, 20 some odd mass shootings just since Uvalde. So it's, it's just, it's such a, you know, they get the attention as they should, because these are children and it's happening often, but they, you know, we keep dancing around sort of the issues and the investigations and, you know, but yeah, the bottom line is access to guns, period. This, this kid, yes, to your point earlier about, you know, there were red flags and, and, you know, red flag laws could be effective in these situations because somebody could have, you know, raise that red flag so that this kid perhaps uh, would not have been able to buy what he bought. But what I see, and and I'm, you know, my I'm, my brother's a first responder. He was a police officer and then a firefighter and then captain. You know, they he as a firefighter would have to go, you know, oftentimes to into people's homes in a moment of crisis. And if there was a gun, it just escalated the whole situation in terms of just trying to help someone. So I watched what happened in Uvalde and, you know, I saw sort of like the stories that came out of Parkland about the, you know, I don't know if that was an officer, John could probably clarify, but, but, you know, he was, I don't want to say nervous to go in, but hesitated or whatever. And so my heart kind of goes out to, to some of these police officers. I know a lot of people are like, they were cowards. They didn't go in. And I thought, you know what, what does this tell you when you have officers who are well-trained with hours upon hours, probably hundreds of hours of training in, you know, crisis situations, 
And they are hesitant to go in because they are outgunned by an 18-year-old who's got better, more ammo, larger weapons. I don't know if he was wearing uh, bulletproof vests. I don't know anything about that. What I do know is you had a bunch of officers standing there, and now we have all the video of these parents like, please, go in. One, I know one mom climbed in a window herself and got her children out because the cops were not moving. So... I'm torn because I'm, I can't get angry at the cops when I'm like, well, they're probably standing there thinking, well, hell, how do I, how do I compete with what that kid has, the firepower? And that goes to why does an 18 year old need a, an, a, an assault style AR 15 or whatever and that much ammunition? They're, that should never, if he just had a pistol, I think the cops would be able to get in there quickly and take down the threat much more effectively. And what breaks my heart is, and I don't want to monologue, but that time, which now we know is almost an hour, I don't even want to know about the parents that are going to hear that their child was shot and perhaps could have been saved had medical intervention been allowed in if they were shot and laid there for almost an hour. Honestly, I am not anti-gun. I have friends who have guns. If, if, if John, if I was in a crowded room and somebody got a gun out, I'd be like, well, I'm glad John's here because he's, I know he's trained and knows what he's doing. So I have a question for you, John, in terms of, I'm not a police officer, but do you think that's part of their concern is them standing there sort of like if frozen in time because they, they simply are out uh, Actually, the, the facts, as they have been revealed to me so far, was that the senior officer at the time, which is the Uvalde School Police District, uh, the district police, he was telling them to hold off because he, it's been explained that he thought he had a barricaded subject, which is not really logical. I mean, I've heard he responded without his radio. I mean, see, this is very intricate and you can go back. And you can pick it apart, and it will be picked apart. Unfortunately, for the for the lives of those children and those families, uh, far too late. Uh, and that goes back to my point about police and and proper training and police in the school. I've heard everything from veterans should be in the school, you know, because they have combat experience, which I am personally against. And I'm a 20 year combat veteran, but I I I. I because of my law enforcement experience, I know that's probably not the, the proper situation or to the solution. But my experience also coincides with what I'm hearing about the chief telling them to hold off and the customs border protection officers, some of them were highly trained, wanted to go and they were following his directive as the incident commander. There's got to be a whole new design on incident command when it comes to these things. Not that we should have them, but we must plan for them. It's just a fact of life. Uh, Everybody hopes to reduce them, but the senior uh, commander should have been someone from Texas DPS, the senior person, or possibly the sheriff's department that was there, a much more experienced department. That's not to say that some agencies don't have very experienced officers, but there's got to be some sort of thought process that makes logical sense to say, no, stick with doctrine, go in and do it. I don't think they were afraid to go in. I think they were doing what they were told by incident command, which is going to be probably come out and be the, the, the biggest problem with the whole thing. Well, aside from that, though, 
which I, I, yeah, there's, there's going to be fallout and then there's going to be lawsuits and then there's going to be pain and more pain. But the bottom line is, do you think, John, if those guys showed up and they, they, cause I, I don't know what they are getting from schools, but if they knew as an example, hypothetically, there's a shooter in there, a kid with a pistol did not have high capacity magazine. Do you think they would have been able to go in, no questions asked, much sooner than they would knowing how he was armed and what he had, just because of what they could hear and what they were uh, Oh, absolutely. Told. Absolutely. I've, I've been on a tactical team early in my career with the sheriff's department I work for and with the Department of Veterans Affairs Police. We trained for active threat response monthly and probably fired more rounds of ammunition and simunitions with the Department of Veterans Affairs Police than any agency I work for. They are extremely competent. In fact, I talked with my deputy chief and said, you know, if we ever had an active threat, I want our guys to be the ones that are addressing it because I know how well trained they are. And that's not to say that Syracuse Police, New York State Police aren't highly trained. They are. But um, I had some highly trained officers down there and our training was extensive. I mean, we had a a FATS machine that was close to a million dollars. And I explained to my director when I wanted to buy it, it was actually about a half a million, excuse me. But I explained, I said, if it if it's prevents one wrongful shooting, it's it's worth every penny of it. And and she okayed it and bought it because and they they train with that today still. But but my point is, yes, every officer that I know that I ever worked with would have gone in there and would have went in. And and you address the threat. And there are mitigating things you can do against a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, and and you train on tactics. And I'm not going to go into them in detail, but there are ways you can address that threat. And body armor complicates it, of course. But, but nonetheless, uh, officers are good enough uh, and experienced enough that they could have addressed that threat if they went in there right away. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week, and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. 
And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Okay, let's actually talk about the guns themselves. Melanie, do you, is there anything you want to say right off about that? I mean, this idea that that a pistol would have done a lot less damage than a, a semi-automatic. First of all, let's get clear what semi-automatic means. I think people like, certainly people like me are confused about this. Melanie, why don't you tell us what you understand about that question, and then John can take it from there. Well, I'm, John's going to probably laugh, laugh at me because I, I don't know guns. And I don't think that's, you know, means I shouldn't talk about what I'm passionate about. Uh, but my basic understanding is that they can uh, shoot more bullets faster and that the damage to the victim shot is more extreme. And I think that for me, the, the semi-automatic, semi-automatic weapon kind of goes hand in hand with these high capacity magazines, which allows just, you look what, you know, my hometown is Vegas. My brother's a first responder in Vegas. That was horrific. You have, you combine a weapon with just almost unlimited ammunition and there's just more damage quickly is my understanding of it. And then to that point, especially with, you know, Newtown and and Uvalde with these babies and tiny little baby bodies, my understanding is that those weapons can be far more catastrophic in the damage they do to the human body. Um, John can probably speak to the mechanics of the actual guns, but that's my understanding from sort of the victim's perspective or from the perspective of someone being shot. Right. And I want John to speak to that, but I also want John to talk about like, why do we need these guns? Because people like me and Melanie can sit here and have, we we cannot fathom a reason that anybody would need this kind of gun, much less uh, somebody who's 18 years old. So talk about all that. To address the first part of the, the question, it goes back to the cycle rate of fire is what they call it. And, you know, how fast a weapon can fire. But semi-automatic simply means one trigger pull, one bullet shot. When they talk about fully automatic, they're talking about a machine gun. Machine guns have been outlawed since the 30s. Takes a special federal license to own a machine gun. Not many people can do it because it's very expensive. And, uh, you know, when you get into ballistics, uh, I'm not a ballistics expert. I've studied a lot of it. And I can tell you that you can buy a pistol round that is far more uh, damaging than a 5.56 millimeter, which is what a AR-15 or a Mini-14 or many other weapons, you know. And the big confusion on the weapons seems to me that a lot of people, you know, the assault weapon, as they like to title it, and it's, to me, wrongfully so, because... I can shoot the same round at the same rate with a mini 14 that has a, has a wooden stock uh, and, and uh, 
to go back to the ballistics again, if you shoot a, if you've ever seen the damage that a 12 gauge shotgun round can do, and you know, you can have a, a capacity of five or six in there and you can reload pretty quick. You can do just as much damage with a shotgun. So I, I think the, that could be a, a debate topic, obviously. Uh, there are people that can talk ballistics all day. I had some of those folks that worked for me, and uh, one of them was my firearms instructor, and that's why I made him that way because he knew what he was talking about. But um, to go back to why we need them, um, especially I because that- all these other guns do the same job. So even more to to my question, why do we need these AR-15s? If that's what we're well. Talking about? Uh, I'll tell you this, if, if I had an intruder in my house, for example, kicking in my door, I would grab my AR-15. And the reason why is I can put five AR-15 rounds in the size of a 50 cent piece at, you know, 50 meters. And if you, if you shoot with a pistol, I'm not as accurate. And I'm a 20-year cop, fired thousands of rounds on the range probably close to a hundred thousand in my career. But, but, you know, when you get down to it, the, the AR 15, everybody says, well, it's not a defense weapon. It is absolutely a defense weapon, low recoil, simplicity of function. And that's one of the reasons, unfortunately, that other people choose them also because you can operate one very simply, but every gun is not that hard if, if you practice with it. Uh, so, I think it's a good home defense weapon. It's a good varmint weapon. I live in a rural setting. We have property. I have animals. Uh, I have to protect my animals. I've had to do that. And so, uh, you know, I, I have a small farm. Using the AR-15 to, to yes, protect yes, yourself from yes. animals? So I shot, I shot a coyote with an AR-15, yes. And, and that was, like, significantly better than a, a regular shotgun or anything else? Only because I wanted to make sure that I'd only shot once and did the job and that I'm a very accurate weapon, extremely accurate with a low recoil. My wife can shoot an AR-15, anyone. I could teach anyone to shoot. So this is, I was just going to say, competition shooters start out with them because they're a very good weapon to train on in marksmanship principles. So are they, is it, is it fair to say that they're sort of like a beginner's weapon? And is that part of the reason that these kids use them? Well, they can be because of the simplicity of them. And that's why the United States Army developed and, and inter- introduced them back in the 60s is because they replaced the M14, which fired a 7.62 millimeter uh, round. The 5.56 is much less recoil. You can take Joe or Jane from off the street you know, remember in basic training, you're, you're making soldiers. You want them to be able, every, every uh, soldier in the U.S. Army has to know how to fire a rifle. And that rifle is very trainable. It's very simple to train on. And, uh, you know, I, I heard a description once uh, that some journalist uh, had said, oh, it was horrific, the recoil and the sound and everything. And I, and I laughed because I remember in basic training, one of the uh, black hats on the marksmanship range took an AR-15. He had blanks in it because, you know, he, he wasn't in the position where he could do this out on the range. He was, we were in a tent. He put it on his crotch and ripped off. That was back when the uh, M16 was uh, auto, full auto or semi-auto. Now they're just semi-auto. 
and let it ripped off about 15 rounds on auto and started laughing. The recoil is so low on that gun that it makes it effective because you can protect yourself with it. You're not shocked by the blast. So I, I have a comment though, because I, I know talking about like ease of use or whatever, but there's so much documentation now at this point after Newtown and Parkland, and I'm sure there will be from Uvalde and everywhere, from ER doctors who are treating gunshot wounds as opposed to gunshot wounds from AR-15 in these shootings, where you know they talk about <laughs> a clean hole as opposed to something that looks like a sledgehammer was taken to a melon. Like it's, un- it's untreatable. The injury is, is nearly impossible to survive. So that's, and, and it's not just one or two doctors. That's now we've got multiple mass shootings and multiple hospitals filled with multiple young and old victims. I mean, after Vegas, we heard the same thing. It's just, it's a different kind of injury. And you compound that with tiny bodies. And I, so I, I, I don't know enough about guns to, to dispute, well, this pistol will shoot the same as the AR-15. I can only go by medical professionals who look into these bodies on a daily basis and are coming out saying it is different when they are wheeled into my OR with what I can do if it was an AR-15. Um, that's sort of why I come to it with, a, and they're, you know, I, some, I think it, well, I want to say it was Texas or Alabama. Some woman looked out her window and saw some of his open carry state these kids walking with AR-15 strapped on their back and she called the police and it's like, well, they're allowed to do that. And it's like, but why? You know what I mean? It's just like, if you're, if you're scared when you see them walking down the street with them, then <laughs> that doesn't give me a sense of security that, oh, good, I'm glad that kid's out there with that AR-15 walking my neighborhood. <laughs> I don't know him. I don't know if he has any training. I don't know if he's mentally able to, you know, handle that weapon. So that's where where I come from and the research I do it I think they are very different weapons when it when it comes to the damage they're doing to to the human body. Well, I I, I got to differ with you on that only because every firearm round is going to do extreme damage. I mean there's no I mean you can get shot by a 22 which is small caliber round practically out there that's commercially sold frequently and you can die from it. Or you can survive from it. And the same thing can be said from that. They do do damage the bigger the caliper goes. But when you go up in the caliber, uh, you're going to find that a handgun, I mean, a 357 Magnum wheel gun will do horrific damage. And gunshot victims, unfortunately, die a lot of them. The only reason in the inner cities, it seems like, and that's the other fact, we talk about gun deaths, but... I got to tell you, it's a good thing that a lot of people in, involved in inner city crime are not good shots because there would be a lot more deaths. And I guess my point in all that is guns do damage. It's, it's a fact. It's a weapon. But the other side of that conversation is enforcing the law on people. And we're not doing a very good job of that at all. And I'll, I'll use an example. The active shooter in Buffalo had a red flag law triggered. New York has a red flag law. Uh, It's tied into the 939 mental health law. And the New York State Police triggered it, and he was picked up and taken for a mental health evaluation. 
and he was released and uh, nothing came of it. And that's where I go into the mental health aspect. The mental health community needs to answer for that portion of it. Why was he released? Why was there not something done to stop him down the road? And this is my point about New York's law. They just went back and the governor just signed, I believe, yesterday to strengthen the law. But we can perfect the laws, but criminals don't follow the law. So we've got to remember, we've got to find ways to get guns out of the hands of uh, dangerous people before they become a threat to anyone. And we're not doing a very good job of that right now. No, and that's and that's one thing we can all agree on. I mean, that's that's the only way to start a conversation is with a shared value. And I think that we all sort of want to keep our families safe. We want to keep our communities safe. Um, we want officers on the street to be able to do their job as safely as possible. And when that's not happening, it, it's really easy to go plant your stake in the opposite side of the earth and say, this is the only way this works. This is the only way that's going to work instead of doing what we're doing right now, which is having a conversation. like, all right, where can we find a way to agree on some simple changes? And I say simple, quote unquote, because there's too much money involved to make it less simple, but there really are simple changes we could do that we all, I mean, so many Americans support things like background checks. So many Americans want a lot of the same things. If we turn off the TVs and, and turn off the extremist views on either side, a lot of us want the same things. Uh, we just can't seem to get it done or to John's point, get people to, in, you know, enforce the laws that we have. Well, two points there that I'd like to make on tag on that because Melanie's right. The first one is that we don't do a good job of enforcing the law and we, we learned a lot about that. The whole group, I knew it. Some of the other members of the group knew it, but we discussed it in, in context on background checks. Everybody talks about a gun show loophole. Well, I can tell you right now, every firearm sold at a gun show, if it's sold at the gun show, there's a, they're all FFLs that are dealing in there. And they all have to perform a background check before they sell a weapon. Federal federal firearms licensed dealer, and 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 they all perform background checks. But a background check is only as good as it's followed up. And I'll give you an example. And I'm not trying to. Well, I'm going to bring politics into it for just a second. But this is just a shining example. Our own president's son lied on an FFL form and has never even been charged with it because it asks you on the form, "Are you addicted to any controlled substance?" And of course, he was a cocaine addict. It's proven. There's pictures of him with a gun and a crack pipe. And, but everyone's going to lie about that. Sorry to interrupt you, but like, uh, how is there any follow up done on that question? I mean, that's well, that, that's totally that goes back academic, to the point I was that. trying to make. I understand what you're saying, but the point is, those things need to be the medical community, and this is a real delicate subject because there's health privacy, and that gets into the mental health aspect of it. And, and there's a lot of privacy issues, but there comes a point in time where we have to say, okay, what do we do to make sure people that are a danger don't get guns? Because as Melanie said, and we agree wholly on this, we want safety. We want safety for everyone. Nobody wants to see children shot in their school. I don't want to see anybody assaulted, mugged. I mean, I was a police officer for 20 years. 
that was my business was to, to, to try to prevent, stop, or deal with those situations. So I, th- I think it's, it's very important, but it is a complex issue. There is no simple answer. And the background checks, that's just one part of it that, you know, those things have to tie together. They found that the Department of Defense in the Texas uh, church shooting, that the Department of Defense was not reporting felons that were discharged. And therefore, a felon who was discharged bought a firearm, and they've since corrected that. I mean, we can get better. We can always get better. John, can you tell us, and you don't have to go into super specific detail, but tell us how many guns you have in your house and what kinds they are and how you got them? Um, well, I'm, I'm a sports shooter and a target shooter. I, that came from every month going to the range as a police officer. And uh, to be truthful, I don't shoot near as much now because you can't buy ammunition. It's very hard to come by now. And uh, so I'm limited on how much I can shoot. And that is a dangerous thing because the more people are experienced with their firearm, the better they're going to handle it. That's why cops go to the range. My department was federally mandated by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'd like to remember the exact number, but I know we went out and qualified every quarter. We went to the range every month. And uh, that's a lot for most, most departments qualified twice a year. We qualified every quarter and we shot every month. And then that's not even to count uh, active threat training, simunitions, which are simulated rounds in simulated firearms. Uh, We train for active threat in buildings. I mean, that's what we practice doing the tactics it takes to uh, address an active threat. So I, I got into it because of my profession of being a soldier and a police officer. I probably have, I don't have an exact count. I've got a list in my safe, but uh, I probably have 40, 40 firearms. And it's an assortment of rif- rifles and pistols, semi-automatics, bolt actions. I do have an AR-15. I've had for decades. And and those are all tools to me. And I have some guns I've never shot because I'm a collector. And it, I bought it at the store, at the gun store, and uh, brought it home and put it away. It's in a collection. I could shoot at any time. I just, I've shot them that type of weapon before. And um, this, I want to keep pristine because it is a collector's item. So, but did you have to go through certain kinds of background checks in order to obtain these weapons? I mean, your your case is a little different because you are a law enforcement officer. So say it's, you were a regular, regular guy with oh, wait, the wait, collection it's that funny, you just it's, described. It's funny you should say that because in New York, who has some of the toughest gun laws in the country, I'm a police officer. And when I moved back here, I had been a police officer. So I had a couple of handguns that I owned and I brought them back with me because according to HR 218, the President Bush, the second Bush signed uh, after 9-11, I can carry a firearm anywhere as long as I maintain my qualification. And uh, I came back, but I wanted to buy a new a new gun. And federally, they will not allow you to, quote, buy on your badge. In other words, because I'm a police officer, I can show my credentials and buy a firearm. Oh no, in New York, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to have a permit. So I went out and got a permit. And when I applied at the county, they waived the training requirement because I showed my credentials and they know I have plenty of training. Uh, They waived the um, 
uh, I think it's a mental health evaluation that they might require. I, I got one as a police officer every year. And even though they photocopied my credentials, when I got my permit, it said target and shooting. There's two levels of permits, concealed carry and target and shooting. And I'd been a cop for over 10 years. And I said to the clerk, target and shooting? Are you serious? I can carry anywhere anyway. And she said, oh, he does that for everyone. That's the local judge that signs off on the permits. And she said, all you have to do is write a letter to him explaining why you think you might need concealed carry and he'll, he'll grant it probably. So I did that and he granted it. And I, I wasn't offended by it. Uh, he's being safe and that's fine. But the bigger question, and New York just improved this approximately five years ago, used to be you got a pistol permit and it was good forever. And I'll try to get to the point here because I've talked too long, but it was good forever. Now you have to get a new NCIC check every five years, a background check. You have to, they have to run a new one. I went to buy a gun and I didn't realize mine had expired. And I was going out to Wyoming and I wanted this gun because it's a good gun to carry against bears when you're hiking out in the wilderness. And uh, I couldn't buy it because I my background check had to wait and come back. So it was two weeks waiting on that, which was fine. But my point would be they have so many procedures in place that even though I'm a police officer in New York State, I, I'm not given anything extra that anyone else isn't for the most part. Okay. Does anyone else in your household or family have a gun? Uh, my wife uh, has a Glock 19 on the side of her bed. So yeah, for protection. And what did she have to do to get that gun? She has a pistol permit and she had to go through all the processes. Now, does the process include training? Uh, I trained her with her. Like if, say I wanted to buy a gun. She, well, you'd have to go to a class. I believe it's uh, six or eight hours. Um, you have to go through. And then uh, when you get it, like hers is target and sporting. She can't carry concealed. And that's fine. Uh, it's primarily for home defense. And I actually purchased the gun and gave it to her as a gift. So, uh, but, uh, you know, that, that's the point. Uh, citizens have to go through the training in New York state. The laws vary from state to state. That's I, no, that's all wonderful. I wish, I wish that was a federal program because Alabama, January 1, 2023, I believe, um, officially starts their permitless carry with no training, no nothing. Carry it. And it's very frustrating because um, we worked really hard to, um, and we had, we thought we were going to be able to persuade lawmakers to, um, to not pass this, but they did. So, I, you know, to my point, I said earlier, I would trust John with a gun and I would trust somebody who had to go through that sort of, uh, process that I would trust that they would know how to use the gun, that they would know how to safely store the gun, which is a whole other, I, I would imagine that John has, uh, other than the bedside table or whatever situation, but that most of your guns are locked and stored properly that, you know, um, you also don't have young people in the house. Well, here's the fact I have no, my grandkids live out of state. I have no children in my house. If somebody brings a child to visit, the first thing I do is lock up all the guns. They go to the gun safe. So yeah, safe storage is, is, uh, and, and I'm going to tell you that most gun owners are responsible about that. Now, like anything, I mean, 
we can break it down. And I don't want to use the analogy all day, but you know, most drivers are responsible and don't drink and drive, but there's always going to be that irresponsible person. And that's who we need to address in the law. The permitless carry, the, 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 no license, no training, no whatever. I would have to, John, that if you walked into, you know, and I probably take you to some places here in Alabama, you walk in a room full of people who all have their guns on their hip. And if you knew none of them had to go through any permit or any license or any training, I, I would imagine, I mean, it makes me uneasy. And that's, that kind of comes to the larger point in this whole discussion is that you know, one person's liberty in this, in this, with this issue can feel like it robs the other person of theirs. And I, and I, and I mean that both ways. And until we sort of address that and really sort of emotionally listen to that, that if I go into a Walmart and I see, as I do, a bunch of people with their prominent guns displayed, I am going to turn around and leave because I no longer feel safe. I do not trust that you know, Bob over there has ever learned how to use that weapon. He might've just got it as a gift or thought he looks cool. I don't know. Not, they're not all responsible gun owners. We see that. We saw that in Newtown when the kid was able to access all the guns in his house with no lock. I mean, you're right. People don't follow the law. So why would I assume that because Joe wanted to go buy a gun in a state like Alabama, that he's going to say, you know what? I should learn how to use this. And I should go ahead and get a permit. And no, I don't have to, I'm not going to, I can buy it. I could go over there and buy one today and not know how to use it and put it in my purse and probably accidentally shoot myself in the foot or worse. Well, and you know, that has happened before. Oh, happens again, a lot. We're, we're talking about, a, a, I don't think as much as you got to remember, there's over hundred million guns in America. And, and the point would be, you can find an exception to every type of uh, situation. And, you know, we're talking about a constitutional right, a right that goes back. Uh, and it's just as important as the First Amendment and every other amendment. Now, when you talk about safety, Melanie knows, because we've had this discussion, I'm not a big advocate for open carry. Uh, I, I think only because I don't think it's, it gives you the advantage of why you might want to carry a firearm anyway, which is the element of surprise that you could protect yourself or someone else if you needed to. But without belaboring that, I'll say that most sportsmen who purchase, and it's funny because my little brother just purchased a firearm in North Carolina, and he called me up and we talked about it, and I told him what he needed to do. And he had to take a course, and he had to apply to the local judge for a permit. And he's in danger in certain situations with his job. So he uh, he applied for a concealed carry permit. We talked about the type of holster that's best to carry and the type of weapon. And I just gave him general generalities and he, he made a selection. But I agree with what he chose. But I think most people are like my brother. They're going to train. They're going to go out. They're going to ask people that are in the know about it. And they're going to do it for their own safety and their own protection. There is a lot of crime going on right now. And I'll tell you right now, I'm glad I live where I live, but I still don't feel 100% safe where I live. Well, if, I you agree with, guns. if you agree with what your brother did, then I guess my issue is why are not the responsible John Godfrey's of the world saying, hey, I don't agree with the permitless uh, carry. You know, I, I don't agree with that. I would like to know that 
because they're making you look bad. Well, the I don't think so. People being irresponsible because... are, are, are making us, people like me, feel that, well, we're just unsafe with all of you guys that are just choosing to just all guns all the time. Well, but that's your, that's your reaction because you don't, you're not a gun person and you admit that. And I understand that and I actually accept it. That's fine. But those people that are carrying are, and they, you know, you're making a, an assumption that they haven't trained based on one incident out of a million people. And you can make that assumption. That's your but, right. But why rely but on an assumption? you don't have a right to take their right away. No, and I don't want to. But why rely on an assumption that they're going to train? Why not just say, okay, you want a gun. You've got to learn how to use it and get a permit so that we know you have it. And then you can go, go have your gun. I don't understand why the push for, you know, as, as the NRA calls it, constitutional carry, it's just, it's sort of an, that, to me, that's just extremist. I don't want to take your gun away. And I don't think, I think you have a right to the guns that you have, 100%. Statistics are showing that constitutional carry states don't have a higher increase in gun crime. Illegal gun carry is where the bulk of gun crime comes from and it's a taboo subject nobody wants to talk about it melanie you remember this clearly from gun conversation but everybody said well we're not going to talk about inner city crime we're not going to talk about drug gun culture but that's where most of your shootings come from and by the definition of mass shooting now which is uh you know four more people shot you're going to find more of it because these gangbangers in the inner city involved in the gun trade are uh, firing spray and pray. Like I said, they're not good shots, a lot of them. And unfortunately, a lot of citizens are getting wounded. But we don't jump in and address that. We don't put people in jail. You know, they came out in the 70s with a five-year minimum federal gun crime sentencing. And, you know, it was a good policy. It scared the heck out of criminals. But unfortunately, the federal prison system couldn't handle it all. And the states didn't want to take on that serious look at gun crime. And we need to do that. We need to put criminals away and put them away for a long time. And it'll stop a lot of gun violence. A lot of gun violence. So that was part one of my conversation with Melanie Jeffcoat and John Godfrey. Melanie is an actor and a gun control activist living near Birmingham, Alabama. John is a retired law enforcement officer living in upstate New York near Syracuse. I'm going to bring you the second part of their conversation next week. It will be nuanced AF as always. So until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.